You will teach them the first law. Only from his hand comes life. Only from his hand comes life. And from his wrath comes death. And from his wrath comes death. Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 3 where we are talking about Cygnus Alpha. First broadcast on the 16th of January 1978. Written, of course, by Terry Nation. Directed by Via Lorimer and it attracted 8.5 million viewers, which is actually up over a million from the first two episodes. So they've had two episodes, they've gained a million viewers on the third. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good word of mouth. It is. Well, what are your initial thoughts on this one, Richard? I enjoyed this one. Look, I mean, who doesn't love Brian Blessed? But uh, <laughs> uh, look, I'd probably say I, I think it's a bit of a step back from the first two. It was better than I remembered it being, but there's some good stuff in there. There's a couple of like plot flaws, I, I think, which we'll get into in a minute. Yeah, I enjoyed this one a lot more than I actually expected. I think a lot of my memory of this is actually tarnished quite a bit by the fact that it was for a long time only viewable as part of that compilation tape mm. where you had the first three episodes all together and squeezed in between Way Back Spacefall and Time Squad which are all kind of cool mm. space sci-fi type shows yep. and you then get a sort of a more melodrama on a planet well I was going to say you sort of get medieval feudal sci-fi yeah it is a little bit incongruous but I think when you just watch it on its own it actually is very very good I really like Brian Blessed in this Oh, I think he's great. He, he, he is great. We'll talk more about him. So, yeah, look, I agree it's not as good as the first two, but mm. I, yeah, enjoyed this mm. really, really quite a lot. Mm. All right, well, you're leading us through this one, Richard. Yeah. What are the first points you've got for us to discuss this week? This is Cygnus Alpha. Now, you would probably immediately think from the title, well, perhaps the London is finally going to reach its destination. So the first thing that they show us is a quick look or a teaser of Cygnus Alpha itself, which as I said a minute ago, looks to be extremely medieval, feudal sci-fi. There's lots of people in robes. It is that sort of staple religious-based society that we get, and that continues, obviously, as we start to meet some of the characters. Yeah, so I think there's a bit of a theme here. The production series, either subconsciously or deliberately, in these first few episodes, is really defining Blake by what he's against. Mm. So he's against oppression, he's against fascism, and you get various different styles of oppressive society. Yes, because so, this is really just another totalitarian state. Yeah, so in the way back you get a politically oppressive state. Yes. In Spacefall you get what is effectively a militarily oppressive society. Yes, and here you get a religious-based one. Yeah, exactly. A so, theocracy. A theocracy. So it's a different kind of oppressive state, but it's still one in which Blake is allowed to uh, go in and express his values so that we all know It gives, who Blake, it gives is. Blake something to push against. Exactly. As a society, I like the idea that it wasn't just your typical prison colony, but it doesn't quite work. The, the script obviously makes it fairly clear. Blake is only on the world for three or four hours at most. So there's probably the argument that all we see is the bits of it that he interacts with. You don't get the idea that there is a functioning society behind this. It's really just a group of scary-looking guys in robes 
running around in a cathedral. Yeah, we at least know that there are animals to eat because we see one of the guys cooking a little, yeah. you know, <laughs> mammal of some sort before while waiting for the spaceship to arrive. But yeah, I, if you're doing it today, I think there would have at least been a mention or a CGI shot or something of the cultivated fields that they've grown or yes. here's, here's the farm implements that we've managed to forge from what we found or... Yeah, it it probably ties into a broader point. And look, we might as well have that discussion quickly now. We talked in the first couple of episodes about you need the pretense that these prisoners are being treated humanely and whatever. But what they actually do do with them, which is just take them to this backwater planet and just dump them, really doesn't make any economic sense because we're told that it's expensive to run the ships and get them there. We're told that... Sometimes they may not even make it, but you would expect there would be a labour camp or something waiting for them at the other end. Now, there might be, and look, Brian Blessed's maybe just the HR manager, but uh, <laughs> that, that's not the impression it gives. It's really they're just herded off the ship and the ship flies back empty. No, so it would be interesting if the concept was every so often the ships rock up, they dump new prisoners and they take on something that's been mined or yes, something and that goes back to Earth. Yes, that's right. There's something incredibly dangerous to mine or something there and they load up. But yes. I, I guess the problem with that is that that would require some sort of Federation supervision and therefore you can't have the whole theocracy type story. No. Which is a compromise you make. And look, if you want my retcon fan theory, and I'm going to have many of these this episode and this season, I suspect, if not this whole series, my retcon fan theory would be that, look, the London goes off to somewhere nearby and actually does pick up some cargo or some passengers and then you know doesn't just go back to it. It actually goes and does stuff. It's not just doing an empty run back. No, fair <laughs> enough. Because, I mean, we're even told in the episode, Artix has clearly never done the Cygnus Alpha yes. run before, you know, and he wants to get off and stretch his feet. And London, no, not here. Yeah, which... You could read as being, you know, we're going to stop somewhere else again shortly, so... Maybe, but, you know, and then the whole idea is, is we're taking off and it's another eight months to get back to Earth. Yeah, so let's go from there then to the eight months, because this, to me, I think is the biggest massive hole it in is. the episode. There is absolutely no way you can reconcile the idea that it's taken several months to get from where the London found the Liberator to Cygnus Alpha... No. ...with the fact it takes about an hour from Blake boarding the Liberator to arriving at Signal South. You cannot reconcile those times. No, I mean, I guess you could make an argument. It depends on what you think that button they press does, but no, I don't think it travels through time. No. We then see Leyland in the ship making his report, which allows us to have a very nice flashback scene previously on Blake 7. <laughs> <laughs> and again, he's obviously taken his time to write that report. Yes. It's theoretically been several months since the incident. You probably can wreck on that part of it. He doesn't write the report until the last possible moment yes. when he realises, look, I have to send this. I don't have a choice. And I mean, even Artix is you know, a little reluctant, obviously, to put it in the transmitter. Yeah. Because he believes it's, it's going to affect his promotion prospects. Yes, being part of a command crew that lost three political prisoners and got your second-in-command killed probably isn't a good look. <laughs> and indeed, it's something that I've reflected on many times going back is Leyland must... When he's known as the guy that lost Blake yeah. and what Blake becomes, he's gone, surely. When we cut away from them, Leyland is sort of sitting there just obviously replaying the events in his head. And yeah, he must know... He's screwed, whether, of course, they desert on the way back or something. Because given that these two, this is the second time we've seen Artix and Leyland, given the way the series has sort of flown, you could almost be forgiven for thinking, if you saw this for the first time, they might actually join the crew or at least be recurring characters. Yeah, maybe they're sent off to hunt Blake or something. Yes. 
you know, or decide, yeah, I am screwed when I get back to Federation space, I'll join you. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting idea, actually. It, it does, however, I'm glad they're back because it does really sell that idea now that we are in an ongoing narrative. Yes. And this isn't just Monster of the Week or Story of the Week. This is an ongoing, flowing narrative that is actually building a set of characters. Yes, that's right. While we're still having the Cygnus Alpha discussion, I want to think we need to talk a little bit more about the society and particularly the way that it's been formed. Now, if you look at the time that this has been written and made, we are still about a year at the time it's written away from the Jonestown Massacre, which is November of 1978. But by 1977... Jones was very much in the media. He was being investigated in California, and that's when, in 77, the whole People's Temple... up and moves. Yeah, yep. moves, moves down there. So that is very much in the media at the time. You've obviously got the Manson family and the murders that occurred in 1969, and, you know, that Manson family was around from yep. 67. There's a lot of cults in there. A couple of years after this, Rumpole of the Bailey actually does a big TV special where they reboot the series, and the entire plot of that is somebody who's in a cult very like this and commits a ritual murder, and what happens, etc., etc. So this idea of a religious theocratic cult is very much in the zeitgeist at the time this is being written. So I think you can very clearly see where Terry Nation is drawing his influences Mm. from. And I find that interesting. That leads us, I think, into Vargas and his role. Let's talk about him as a character, then let's talk about the actor. I thought initially he was quite good. There is a scene, and we're jumping ahead quite a bit, but... There's a scene where he's first interrogating Blake, which is actually really, really good. Yes, he becomes shouty Brian Blessed, and he does a lot of hissing, but that is actually a really well-played scene. Yes, there's some wonderful exchanges out there. They worship me. I fear you. The two are inseparable. All the stuff where he just realises that he can threaten Blake with the teleport bracelets. Very subtly, he's just breaking them and showing he's in control. That's a really good scene from Blake's point of view as well, in that Blake, you can actually see his desperation start to rise as he realises, actually, no, he is trapped. He is at this guy's mercy. And Blake sort of starts off with this sort of, you know, I'll just ask him nicely. I ask that they be allowed to come with me. I ask that they be given a supply of the drug. And I'm just looking at that going, in what planet did you think that this guy was going to say, oh, okay then. Vargas is obviously as trapped on Cygnus Alpha as anybody else. Yes. And his way of dealing with it is to control the populace. I was sort of half expecting, and again, if you're watching this for the first time, once he gets up onto the ship, you would sort of have the moment, well, actually, all that religious stuff was just a load of nonsense. Now I've got the ship. Let's go. Yeah, and, and there is an interesting juxtaposition in the Cygnus Alpha characters between those who clearly are just prisoners who've arrived and either are making the best of it or want to ingratiate themselves into the society, they want a promotion, and those who have clearly been born on the society and just raised in this particular way. And and this is just all they know. That's right. Uh, Which brings me to the final point I have on that before I think we do go on to Brian Blessed specifically, and that is I wonder if there is actually only one run of prisoners, so literally there's 16 months or more between loads, in which case, it is incredibly fortuitous that Blake was tried like a day before yes. the next one went. <laughs> There's a ship going. Or, or are there multiple ships sort of, you know, every couple well, of months that go to Cygnus Alpha? Interesting. At the start, they clearly know to look out for the ship. There's the bloke sitting there cooking his barbecued rabbit or whatever it yeah. is who's watching for the ship. Kara comes along and clearly she's expecting to be able to see the ship in the sky. Mm. So there's obviously some form of timetable attached to it. Yes. 
whether they just hold Blake in the cell until, okay, there's a ship ready to go, now let's do the show trial, and then quickly get him found guilty and get him onto the ship. But you would think it would be reasonably frequent. Yes, it, it certainly gives that impression. And given that there's 500 people on the planet mm. at any one time, and there's only about a dozen that are transported, even if you allow for the few that got shot during Blake's mutiny, <laughs> maybe normally two dozen would arrive. Yes, that's um, right. Yeah, that's not a lot. Let's talk about Brian Blessed. We normally reserve our guest characters for the guest character segment, but this is such a fundamental part of the episode. I think mm. we can't not have the talk because he's a fascinating character. And the Brian Blessed that appears in this in 1978, he's not the Brian Blessed that we've known for the last sort of 35 years, mm. which is basically, look, it's a Flash Gordon. Yeah, point of Flash Gordon. Yeah. Before he did Flash Gordon, he was a very, very well-regarded character actor. Mm. He's got credits going back to 1959, uh, he started as Porthos in The Three Musketeers and then The Further Adventures of The Three Musketeers in 66-67. He was in The Avengers. He was in Man of La Mancha. He was a regular in Arthur of the Britons in the early 70s. He was allegedly one of the actors the BBC looked at to take over Doctor Who from William Hartnell. Uh, yes, that's right. He was in 115 episodes of Z-Cars from 62 mm-hmm. to 65. And probably most famously, he played Augustus in I, Claudius. Yes. And if you look at some of the reporting around that time, there were people who genuinely regarded Brian Blessed as being the best television actor in the UK at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and look, his performance as Augustus is just a fantastic performance. The Senate today voted to make me a god in Palmyra. They'll put a little statue to me in the temple. And people will bring offerings to me, asking me to bring rain or cure their father's gout. <laughs> Tell me, Livia, if I'm a god... Even in Palmyra. How do I cure gout? And I know he's done a lot of theatre work as well. And you can really imagine him just getting up in a theatre and just letting rip on stage. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, Especially and doing something like Henry V, for example, which yes. he, he did a couple of times. Yes. Well, he was in the original cast of Cats, I think, wasn't he? Uh, he was, yes. 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 And again, you could imagine him up on stage. I mean, there'd be <laughs> nobody in the auditorium who wouldn't hear him. No. So he, of course, goes on to do Flash Gordon in 1980. Gordon's alive! His career really does turn on a dime at that point because he really gets this reputation in the sort of pop culture for being the shouty, crazy guy. The loud, shouty guy. Uh, it's not helped by the fact that in 1983 he plays Richard IV in The Black Adder. Which, let's face it, is exactly yeah. that. Fresh horses! And after that, he's very much cast to do that sort of role. He's in Doctor Who in 1986, purely to be the loud, shouty guy. Yes. And it sort of ends with him playing Boss Nass in The Phantom Menace. Yes. Yes. Less said about that, the better pass. Yeah, well, well, not to say that any of these performances are bad. I mean, his turn as Yukarnos in Doctor Who, Mm. when you actually sit down and watch it, if if you can watch Mind Warp, is actually, there's some really wonderful moments in there. But he's clearly just been hired to come and shout loudly. Yes. So it's fascinating to see this role that he has back before Flash Gordon. And I think he's really good in the role. I think he carries the episode. I think he's right. Now we've talked about Cygnus Alpha and the economics of the Federation, (laughs) um, we probably should move on to the actual heroes of the story. Yeah, so the other plot is essentially a continuation of Blake and Avon and Jenna discovering the Liberator. Well, we cut back to, as we said a minute ago, they clearly at this point have not been on the ship for more than an hour or two. No, they've basically come on, they've defeated that security guard thing, and now they're going, well, 
we've we're, made the ship go. Yes, and now they're sort of poking around looking at the controls. Yes, how do we make it stop? So, of course, we go through, they have the initial discoveries of the handguns. Yes. Everyone seems to make the point that they're only allowed to have one each until Blake then hands his to Jenna. Yes. <laughs> uh, that is done away with very quickly, and I don't think it's even referenced again in the series. No. But it does lead to that nice scene where Avon sort of says, well, this gives me a sense of security, and he's there pointing at it at Blake. Yes, and I love the way that Gareth Thomas really underplays that. And it allows the character of Blake to actually continue to assert himself as higher in the pecking order than Avon, mm. not because he tries to go toe-to-toe with Avon, but because he's kind of dismissive of Avon at that point. Yes. Avon's like, hey, I've got the gun, I'm an authority, and Blake's just like... Yeah, whatever. It is very much, well, you're a free man. I mean, Blake's idea of you're free to do what you want really is, well, you don't have to stay with me, but I'm taking the ship. This is what anyone with me is going to do. Yes, and it's subtly implied as well that Blake knows he can do this because Jenna's in his corner. Yes. So it will always be two to one at this point. Mm. They then press the really cool button (laughs) with the condensed air effect. Yes, which I believe from having read Making Blake 7, they all found very uncomfortable having the air gun blasted in their face. I I could imagine because it actually goes pretty long. Yes. My second fan retcon theory for the episode uh, (laughs) is that because they haven't activated Zen at this point, the Liberator isn't operating for proper human conditions. Yes. So it's going really fast without the appropriate compensation required for the human body to actually work. <laughs> and that's why we never see that happening again. Because once Zen is in proper control of the environment, then, you know, he can control all that. Yes, he doesn't want the humans splattered up against the back wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's my second yeah. retcon theory for the day. Well, of course, mentioning Zen, that is our next discovery. Yes. Is where suddenly Jenna touches the next control and can't move her hand. Avon's initial thing is don't touch her yes. because you might become a part of this. I just thought Avon had been watching enough sci-fi and knew that that was the cliche. <laughs> yeah, so Jenna gets this lovely little monologue where she effectively has been downloaded into the computer. Yes, and, and has this bond with Zen. And Zen activates and says the ship is yours and he will do what they say. Although you note he doesn't, not dislike, but clearly is somewhat more detached towards Avon. Yes, that actually does come across. Yes, he doesn't welcome Avon at all. And when Avon starts questioning him, he immediately shuts down. Yes, wisdom must be gathered, it cannot be given. (laughs) Which is, of course, a piece of Zen philosophy. Yes, and don't philosophize with me, you metallic moron, or whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah. I do like the way that Zen is introduced here. Look, first of all, it adds a nice little bit of space sci-fi to the show. You've Mm. got that AI computer. I think that's very much the vibe of the time. It does allow the characters to get on with a lot of things. If I look at what Russell T. Davies said when he was later writing the new series of Doctor Who, the characters should find problems in the plot through the villains or what's going on in the episode, not because of a locked door. Yes. And I think it's the same thing here. We want them to have adventures and be frustrated by pursuit ships and the Federation, not because, well, we've got to steer the ship. Probably a mild spoiler for the next episode or two clearly and and look I guess from production viewpoint why they're probably quite working out how the dynamics of the series are going to work there is a slightly more not sinister but a slightly more unusual aspect to Zen where he will help them at some times and not others where parts of the ship suddenly stop responding to them Mm. those sort of things and we do have another discussion about that next fortnight the design of the Zen though is really really good and different and innovative and not something you would expect no. Having seen now how it was done with the Perspex Dome with the lights behind it, kind of spoils the effect somewhat. But it is an unusual design. 
Yes, as indeed is the flight deck of the Liberator, which they can then explore the hexagonal corridors that they go through. Yes, it's conceptually alien. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, at the end of one of those corridors, we have one of the big parts of the Blake Seven mythos. Yes. Which is the teleport bay. We discover the teleport bay. To explain to a 1970s audience, obviously, what the idea behind teleportation is, they managed to mask that with the Aquatar discussion. Yes. Small world, big project. <laughs> I didn't work on it. Yeah, which allows them really to give a bit of a dissertation without sort of, you know, having to expound, really. But Avon, of course, is not keen on testing it until he knows it's guaranteed to be safe. Yes. That allows Blake to get that hero moment of, well, I will put my life at risk to test the You know, this is a stupid risk. Yes, which I'm taking. Yes. This is contrasted with Blake's actions later in the episode. Now, initially, they've just been exploring the ship, in inverted commas. While they're looking in the teleport bay, suddenly the ship noise changes. And when they go to investigate, they suddenly find it's stopped. And on further investigation, they find they're now orbiting Cygnus Alpha. They either have no idea where they are in relation to the planet when the journey started, or weren't expecting to get there anything like that quickly, because they're clearly quite surprised that they're there. Yes. But of course, in that exchange, the ship now has a name, Liberator, which it gets from its mind meld with Jenna. Yes, and I guess... That bonds very well, both with the fact that she has personally been liberated by finding the Liberator, but also with the fact that Blake intends to use it to liberate other people. Yes, well, that's the idea anyway. Yes, that's a nice idea. Yes, because then won't tell them how the teleport works. One of them has to risk it, which, as you said, gives Blake the nice hero moment. It is. So let's explore Blake a little bit more now, because he's obviously very important in this episode. He's the co-star with Brian Blessed. This really puts a heavier stamp on Blake's character. It does. So he gets the hero moment of, I will put my life at risk, not yours, and I'll lead by example. I'll go down with the teleport. He gets a moment of pushing back against Brian Blessed, then he recoils a little bit as he realises he's defenceless, then he uses his character to push back further, but he also gets some very selfish moments with the prisoners where he's completely uninterested in their condition. He just wants what he wants. Yes, and he even has that with Brian Blessed because they both need men. Yes. Brian Blessed obviously needs him to work the land. He needs muscle and sinew. (laughs) But, (laughs) But Blake is very much, well... I need a crew. Yeah, I need a crew. So why are we even having this discussion? Yes. You should be giving them to Yes, him. as though Vargas is going to go, oh, well, if you need a crew, sorry, my bad. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and even when he meets the prisoners, there's no even moment of, are you feeling okay? Are you all right? It's, well, look, we'll maybe be able to solve your problem. I don't care. Come with me. We need a crew. Let's go. Yeah, and, and even when he's put back in the cell after being tortured, it comes up as, you know, you're a bunch of pathetic worms. Yes. You're just going to stay here. You can fight or you can die. And clearly the ones who decide they don't want to come with him, it's really just screw you. Yeah. You, you've made your choice. Which is interesting to see Blake be ineffective in his leadership. And you can kind of understand it because the last time he tried to lead these guys anywhere, half of them got killed by Raker. Yes. These are the guys who are standing in a room with Raker firing at them indiscriminately in the last episode because Blake's planned that, you know, he promised them freedom and he failed. And now he's promising them again. I, I don't know why I would go with you. Yeah, why, well, why should him? we follow you? Yeah. The one note I did have here about that is it's very much he just needs a crew. He's not after specific prisoners. He's not even after specific skill sets. It's, it's really just anyone who will follow mm. him, which considering they're prisoners, I mean, they're not all victims of circumstance like him. There actually must be some hardened criminals in there. I mean, presumably it's to form the basis of his army that is going to go and liberate the people. 
Yes. But he really isn't very choosy. As long as you're prepared to follow him, as we will see during the series, as long as you're prepared to follow him, really, that's all that matters. We should probably talk a bit about the prisoners. Now, there are essentially four speaking parts that represent the entire bunch of prisoners, which is fine, it's TV, we get that. It is perhaps a bit of a letdown that that all four of them are suddenly the four that join his revolution at the end. Yes, although obviously two of them don't make it. No. So we get to see Gan again, and Gan actually takes on a leadership role amongst the remaining prisoners, Mm. which is very interesting to see. He's very pragmatic, he's very protective of them. He's very pragmatic, as you said, and straightforward, because it's very much, well, we can't stay in the silo forever, so our only option is to go out there, so let's go. Yes. And if you're too scared, I'll go. Yes. Villa is essentially the same character that we saw in Spacefall, but he now doesn't have the protection of Blake. No, he now has the protection of Gan. Yes. You can see that he is a character that needs to be under somebody's wing. He was under Blake's wing last episode. Blake's not here. He's under Gan's wing. It's interesting because he does come across as a bit of a smart ass, basically. Mm. You see the look on his face when Arco threatens him and then Gan steps in. You see that sort of smug look on his face yes. that, well, that stopped you, didn't it? Uh, yeah, Michael Keating plays that really, really well. And he also gets those lines like, you know, the architectural style is early maniac. You know? <laughs> Which allows him to be scared because I don't think it's unreasonable to be scared while still showing a bit of character. No, that's right. You know, let's all go. Actually, on the other hand, let's all stay. Let's <laughs> <laughs> all take off. And of course, yeah, we've mentioned Arco a couple of times and the other speaking part is a chap called Selman. Yes, who doesn't even get an on-screen death. No, and really doesn't have what you would call a defining character trait other than he's clearly fairly nervous. Yeah. From a production point of view, those two... Arco and Selman were initially going to be part of the crew. They were dropped when it was felt the cast was too large. Yes. Those characters. So, as you say, Selman isn't really that well defined. He's just another voice to no. allow for the discussions. Arco, though, actually does get quite a bit of a character. He does. And I mean, he had he gone into the series again, I mean, look, he was dropped at a scripting stage, so it's not a case that they hired Peter Childs and then suddenly decided, no, you're, you're not continuing. But he was intended to be one of the major characters and probably Blake's chief antagonist. So a lot of his stuff actually is what then passes to Avon. Yes, and you do get the impression that he really is a hardened criminal. Yes. You know, he's not afraid to pull a knife on somebody. He doesn't care what other people think of him. And he clearly fancies himself as a bit of a leader. Yeah, he does actually. Actually gets to have quite a graphic death scene Mm. where he's stabbed in a fight, kills the other guy. And then that bit where he's literally just dragging himself along Trying to get the Liberator bracelet. Trying to get to the bracelet. Yeah. I mean, you also see really an aspect of Villa's character in there. When the fight breaks out, Villa clearly is straight down onto the floor. Yes. It crawls over to the table, grabs the bracelet, then disappears back into the... Until he is directly attacked. Yes. And has to take an active part in the fight. Yes, and pulls a knife and actually kills someone. Yeah, and then you sort of have that moment where he realises what he's just done. Mm. And he's just sort of this horrified look as he's looking at the bloody blade. Yeah. But, I mean, you you do see, yes, he's straight down onto the floor (laughs) and out of danger. We should mention then the C-plot of the episode, which is what's happening on the Liberator when Blake's on Cygnus Alpha. And I think one of the things that really makes Blake 7, and I think particularly this first series, is that Terry Nation is very good at making sure that most of the cast have something to do. Most of the time, yes. Most of the time. And this is a good example. I mean, if this was a lot of episodes of Star Trek, once the away team or whoever's beamed down to the planet... That's the story. Yes. Whereas this has very clearly got a whole nother plot going on on the Liberator with Avon and Jenna. Yes, because 
when Blake goes back down to try and rescue the prisoners, he does make his pointed comment to Jenna, no, I don't think you would leave me. <laughs> uh, after Avon's sort of done the total non-reassuring. Oh, come on, Blake. Do you really think we'd leave you down there? <laughs> <laughs> but not unreasonably, they go off to try and find, you know, maybe a change of clothes or the space equivalent of a bathroom or something. Yes. Well, you would think after, well, at least four months on the London, they would be getting uh, a bit whiffy by now, you would think. (laughs) Avon and Jenna are left on the Liberator, and there is clearly a scene here where they're sizing each other up. They have the discussion about whether they could kill somebody in cold blood. That then obviously leads into the bit where Jenna then leaves Avon to go and do a bit more exploring around the ship. He immediately then sets to work. Now he knows that the teleport works. Sets about pulling it apart so he can see how it works. <laughs> but she then comes back and she's obviously had to clean up and change her clothes, which you know he then maybe says, "Well, I'm glad you didn't waste your time on frivolities." But he decides he will go and clean himself up as well. But she then sort of says, "Well, there's another room you might like to go and check out," which he does. And clearly, it is so entrancing to him he doesn't bother cleaning up or changing clothes. <laughs> But he comes back with the bag of costume jewellery. <laughs> Obviously from the treasure room or whatever you want to call it. And there is the scene there. He has been quite keen to leave. Because as soon as they got to Cygnus Alpha and they sort of had the idea the Blake's going to go and try and land the ship or do whatever. He's, why, why don't we just leave? I'm free and I want to stay free. And they have another argument about Blake needing a crew. The room full of money clearly tips him over, well, look, this is too good an opportunity to pass up. We should just abandon Blake. Look, Blake is a crusader. We should just abandon him. But he seems to need Jenna's compliance, at least, even if she's not going to be a part of it, that she's not actively going to try and stop him. Yes. She is obviously tempted. She's clearly becoming attached to Blake. I mean, she's extremely happy when they successfully get him back from Cygnus Alpha the first time. She's quite relieved and demonstrably relieved that he came back safely. But the hour feels like, well, if I give him an hour, maybe something will happen in that time that will make the choice for me so my conscience can be clear. Yeah, I also read it similarly, but not quite the same, in that she wants to be able to live with herself afterwards. Yes. And if she can say forever, look, I gave him an hour, yeah. I, gave him his, well, I gave him his four hours effectively, mm. then she knows she could probably square her conscience away when she's sitting there being fantastically wealthy owning a planet. (laughs) that's right. I do like, though, that Jenna is given that genuine conflict. I think that it would be unrealistic if she wasn't looking at the millions and millions of credits. As somebody who has lived the life of a smuggler, she clearly has lived life on the edge. She's been a prisoner now. She's had to reflect on the fact that she could have spent her entire life on Cygnus Alpha. And even when she sees the planet, she has Mm. that moment of that's where we're going to spend the rest Mm. of our life. That, That clearly is sitting deep inside her. So the fact that when Avon says, look, we could just be free and safe for the rest of our lives, there's a part of it that's going to go, this is a good thing, I want this. Yeah, that's right. This, this is far too good an opportunity to pass up. And there is the thing at the end, look, when Blake calls in and he needs help, she is waiting for Avon, obviously, to hit the recall button. He doesn't, so she does. Now, there's a scene where they're wrestling. Unfortunately, that's not very well edited because it cuts away. He's got it gripping her hand, so she can't work the button. Then there's several minutes while they're fighting down on the planet. And when they come back, he's standing over near the teleport bay and she still hasn't pressed the button. Yeah, it it is actually a little bit weird. So I'm not quite sure whether that's a different take or something. I don't know. But, of course, we're now getting towards the end of the episode. 
they have the final fight, which is very much the sort of the, yeah, the, yeah. Fake, the fake prisoner idea. There is the moment there, clearly, where Pamela Salem's character, who, who really doesn't have a lot to do in the episode. No, I think that she is there to simply be the true believer. In contrast to Laren, who is there to be the, look, I know this religion's a complete farce. I know it's manufactured. I just want it. Or more, it's I don't care. I just want a position of power. Yeah, that's right. I don't care if I have to do the whole rhetoric. You know, like I mean, he's the one that, oh, cool, here are more prisoners for us to command. Yes. No, more souls for the faith. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And he is obviously, I mean, he makes the point during the episode, you know, when am I going to get my chance to be elevated to the priesthood or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, so, but there is that moment where she's quite visibly distressed that it's Gan that's the one that's going to be sacrificed. Yeah, and that to me is probably one of the weaker moments of the episode because there's just no reason for that at all. No. I mean, you'd think that Gan doesn't offer anything that a planet full of farm-working prisoners wouldn't offer her already. No. It almost feels like there is a plot thread that's being dropped. Which is interesting because we get the entire sort of minor plot thread of Blake going down to the planet and then just beaming up again. Yes, you're right. I mean, nothing happens during that four minutes he's down there. It doesn't advance the plot any, really, other than we see that the teleport works and how it works. No, it really does feel like padding. It would be interesting if they chose to cut some of, you know, character plot Mm. in return for Blake stumbling around in the dark for four minutes. (laughs) Although it does give us the moment where he lies when he comes back, where he doesn't tell them what happened. Yes, he totally deflects. Which, again, is another character moment that just shows that Blake is willing to be morally dubious if he believes the end... If if it advances his agenda. That's right. He doesn't want to risk the idea of Jenna saying, don't go down again if it's dangerous. Mm. Or Avon. You you nearly got killed, we're leaving. Yeah. Yeah. We also haven't mentioned the Curse of Cygnus, which I must admit, when I saw this the first time, admittedly I was much younger, I totally bored and I was totally surprised by the reveal that it wasn't an actual sickness it was just a, a fake there is the thing where they're withholding the drug and you do sort of then have to wonder well what happens if somebody calls Vargas's bluff and says well fine don't give me the drug mm. and then when they don't die but you, you would think that they would probably advance his death a little by <laughs> other means they're quite big on how to punish unbelievers yes yeah it, it's interesting I mean the fact that we don't see Blake apparently affected by the sickness at all. It does make you wonder whether it's something they actually put in the food that they give them when they arrive. Well, that but... was always my assumption, that they go down, they're brought in, they're given hospitality, they're given the food, and in that is the sickness. Yes. Although, that then implies that there are people other than Vargas who are in on the secret, because somebody has to put the stuff in their food. Yes. Um, or whether it's the sacred food that we give to new novices, mm. perhaps. But I suppose the idea of the drug does allow you to do a little bit of extra world building. You could imagine that the way the theocracy would work is, you know, you have daily communion where you're given the breath mints yes. or whatever to ward off the sickness. It's highly ritualised. Yes, and that's your way of keeping track of everybody. Yes. Everybody has to be there at one point. Everybody gets counted and everybody swears their frailty. Exactly. Et cetera, et cetera, yeah. And then you can punish unbelievers in front of everybody. Yes. Only from his hand comes life and from his wrath comes death. Yes. <laughs> As I said, we're now getting very close to the end of the episode. So, of course, the final act really is that in the confusion of the fight, Vargas, who is wearing a teleport bracelet, is brought up to the Liberator along with Blake and Villa and Gang. There is, of course, I think this is one everybody who watches Cygnus Alpha picks up on, the way it's framed is that there is a second teleport bay. Yes. Over on what actually is the fourth wall, basically, of the teleport chamber. Yes, that we never actually see again. No. It is implied to exist in another episode. Mm. 
But we don't actually physically see it again. Yeah, no, we don't. And of course, we then get the final... Denouement. Yes, well, I was actually going to say info dump, basically, <laughs> where, where Vargas conveniently ties yes. up all the plot threads before they kill him. <laughs> uh, yes, and look, I am kind of glad that they very quickly get it out of the way the idea of we can kill someone by yes. teleporting them out of existence. That is just a very easy and obvious thing to do once you want to teleport. They do it quite quickly, and I'm sort of quite relieved. I'm sort of like, right, we've done that, we've shown that, and we can move on from there. Mm. This is maybe where, if you want to pick on Brian Blessed's performance, this is really where it becomes quite shouty. Yes, and I suspect that it's probably what Via Lorimore asked him to do, mm. because he's clearly made different acting choices. I think this is where Via Lorimore, as the director, has gone, right, we need to amp up the tension. I want you to go full maniac. Yes, and of course, you know, he has the big pose at the end. I shall return to them, our God, by throwing his arms out just yes. as he's teleported out. Yeah, I suspect that's what he was told to do. Yeah, I would think so. And, you know, I'm not having a go at Lorimore here because a lot of this episode is actually very well directed, particularly the location footage, John Sigmund mm. Alpha. That is very well directed. It is. For what is, let's face it, it's the BBC quarry. Yeah. But they actually have made an effort. It's shot at night. There's obviously painted backdrops and everything in the background. They've had the dry ice out. I mean, it looks like a singularly unpleasant place. It does, and given the very difficult lighting that that would have involved, he does a really good job. Well, really, the final little coda to the episode, now Blake has two more followers, and, of course, he can now start advancing his plan of starting to fight the Federation. Yes. But their celebration is short-lived because we encounter the first of many Federation pursuit ships. Cue the credits. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I guess, is a way of just showing, you know, okay, we are continuing this story next week. Yes. And, I mean, it's very clearly set up now. We've got the ship. I've got what's the basis of a functioning crew. Now we need to learn how to use the ship properly. And when we do, we're going to stop running. Yeah. Which is a good ending. Yes. Cue credits. Cue credits. We will move then into our regular segments. Now, the first of these is guest cast. Yes. Now, we've covered Brian Blessed. And let's face it, it's Brian Blessed. So, really, that's all we need to say, I think. (laughs) Our next guest cast I had is Peter Childs, who played Arco. Now, shortly after this, I think he would probably get the role for which he's most remembered, which is as Detective Sergeant Rycott in Minder, which is a recurring nemesis of Arthur Daly's, one of the two recurring police roles. He is also for Grange Hill fans. If anyone remembers the Grange Hill spin-off Tucker's Luck, which follows Tucker Jenkins when he leaves school at age 15, he actually plays Tucker's friend Alan's father in the first series. Nice obscure credit there. One for the Grange Hill fans. (laughs) He is in a lot of series. He he was a recurring face on a lot of UK programs. Somewhat ironically, we had a reasonably major role in Softly Softly Task Force, which was the show cancelled to make way for Blake Seven. <laughs> I didn't realise that. <laughs> Another of the guest cast is David Ryle, who plays Selman. He's got quite a large career, most of which is actually after Blake Seven. This is one of his earlier roles. Yeah, he did a lot of theatre work. I okay. think. Probably the one that I recognised him most from is he's from the second and third series of the House of Cards trilogy in the UK. Oh, yes. He was Uh, also in The Singing Detective. He was in The Singing Detective. He was in The Borrowers as a regular. Mm -hmm. And he was also in the first series of Goodnight Sweetheart. Yes, he played Dervil Kerwin's father. That's right. The pub owner. So, yeah, but he's got a lot of credits again. Nothing sort of big and starring, but, yeah, quite a few regular pieces. Uh, He he was in a lot of extremely well-regarded stage stuff. Fair bit of RSC work, too, I think. So, yeah. He actually died not all that long ago. No. I think only in the last couple of years. Now, of course, we mentioned Pamela Salem a few times. 
Her, obviously, other big genre credit probably is in Doctor Who in The Robots of Death. Yes, written by Chris Boucher. Yes, indeed. And, of course, she comes back in Remembrance of the Daleks. Lots of appearances in really well-known UK TV programs. The Professionals, The Aneedon Line, All Creatures Great and Small. Although, I think a lot of her recent work has been in the US. I don't know whether she's relocated. Yeah, that, that is right, yes. She's a very good actress, and she is totally wasted in this role. Yes, very much so. Our final cast member is Robert Russell, who plays Laren. Again, his big genre credit is he plays the Kaba yes. in the Doctor Who story, Terror of the Cycle. That's right. Very good, your grace. That's right. That's about his only line, I think, isn't it? <laughs> he is, again, in quite a bit of stuff, but often very minor roles. I think he played a lot of heavies and yes. policemen and soldiers. Probably one of his better known roles, a Vincent Price movie, Which Finder General which is sort of a variation on the Matthew Hopkins story, where he plays his rather sadistic sidekick. And I think got yeah got, got some quite good notice, I think, for that. Not the witch bill of Persuaven? No. <laughs> Blackadder reference there. Yes. Our next segment is a more fun one that we call, look, it was the 1970s. I've only got a couple of minor points here. I do note that across the entire cast of the prison planet that presumably has now got multiple generations, there is one female. Well, I suppose, again, if we say that she's there to be the true believer, Vargas is the prophet, or whatever you want to call him. You know, she's clearly his offsider, yes. or his female offsider. Uh, yeah, look, that was just a thing I noted. And I just noted as well that Zen is a very 1970s computer. Even though it's very originally done and very differently done, it is a 1970s version of HAL. Yes, very much so. One note I did have, and actually probably should have done it earlier, is... Brian Blessed's shoes. Which are very 1970s. Yes, those white sneakers that he's wearing under his robe. Fair enough. We now move to Liberator Database, which is where we just collect the various bits and pieces of Apocrypha and uh, myth-making. Yes, and world-building. World-building. Zen we've spoken about. Yes, the teleport. Uh, the um, display screen. We get the term standard speed. Yes, we do. Which becomes a staple of the next three series. Yep, we get our introduction to the Federation Pursuit Ships. We get our first appearance of the Liberator Guns, which although we've mentioned in passing, we haven't talked about the design, which is phenomenally good. And clearly the effects team has said, look, how do we do something that doesn't look like a handgun? It's interesting, the first person to fire one isn't one of the crew, it's Vargas. That's right, yes. Yes, you can see... Just the look of sheer delight on Vargas's face when he realises how powerful this weapon is. Yes. I believe the novel actually referred to it as akin to sexual ecstasy in the Trevor Hoyle novel. <laughs> but The other thing that I'll mention here isn't an artefact but a, a character trait. And look, we've mentioned Blake a lot, but we do get here that hint of his backstory as being an engineer, which hasn't really been mentioned before. No, that's true. Now we then move on to our segment, What Cool Lines Did Chris Boucher Give Avon This Week? Now, given this is an early script, we probably aren't really into Avon's real snarky dialogue yet, I don't think. No, I had two down that I really quite like. Yes, all right, you go first. Did you really think we'd leave you down there? (laughs) (laughs) And also his conversation with Jenna, which includes the line, he's a crusader. He'll look at this all as just another weapon to use against the Federation, and he can't win. You know he can't win. Yeah, I had that one as well. The other one I had, and it's not really an Avon line, it's actually an exchange he has with Jenna where Avon says he thinks he might have to reprogram Zen, and Jenna comes back with, that still won't make you likeable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we now move to our Play or Player of the Week. Richard, you've been taking us through this episode. What was your pick? I was very tempted to give it to Brian Blessed because, hey, it's Brian Blessed, but... No, look, I've actually gone with Blake. I think because, as we said earlier, this episode really 
put a heavy stamp on a lot of Blake's character traits that we'll see. Whilst we get some character development for Avon and for Jenna, really the one who gets the big development here is Blake because we start to get an idea of how single-minded Blake is in his pursuit of attacking the Federation. The fact that he is prepared to manipulate and lie to the people around him to further his own aims. So, yeah, I, I thought he was really well-written and well-played. Yeah, look, I don't disagree with any of that, but I have given it to Brian Blessed. <laughs> I particularly give it to him for the scene where he and Blake first have that confrontation. The line, you, and then I thought, what more could it be? And the whole exchange of they worship me or fear you, the two are inseparable. I just think that's a really good exchange, and he plays that perfectly. Yeah, I must admit, I think that is probably one of the best scenes in the episode. Yeah, I, I think it is the, the scene of the episode. Hmm. So there we have it. So there we have it. I think that this has always felt like a bit of a come down after Spacefall. And look, it mm. is a bit of a come down, but not nearly to the extent I thought it was. I really appreciated this as a standalone. Like you, this was better than I remembered it being. My memory of it was sort of fairly low rent medieval sci-fi with sort of shouty Brian Blessed. Mm. But no, I, I was quite pleasantly surprised by this one. So we're three out of four episodes through our establishing of the Blake 7 universe. We're, one we're, more to go. I was going to say, we're nearly at the end of the first compilation take. <laughs> That's right. So in a fortnight's time, we will be back with Time Squad. Yes. I've been Richard. And I've been Dave. Set a course for Saurian Major. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7.